Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Patrick Bacusis of The Sales Natural. Patrick is, he's not, wasn't born a sales natural. He had to learn it like everybody else. But his point is really, you have to behave naturally when you're selling. And fr- frankly, awful lot of salespeople turn up and they're not terribly authentic. Now, the word authentic has been hackneyed and overused, but the reality is you have to turn up and be yourself. And part of the problem here is around perception. So we're going to dig into that. We're going to dig into things like attachment. Yeah, no mother ever had an ugly child, Patrick said, and realize that people are not logical. We are irrational apes. The overwhelming evidence is that only about 2% of your working or your waking day is spent in actual thought. The rest is driven by emotion. So why do we do what we do? What will it be like when you get things the way you want them to work? What's the outcome that you're looking for? Why is that important to you? We're going to dig into this kind of stuff. So Patrick, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, today promises to be an interesting conversation. So would you mind giving us maybe 60 seconds on your history, please, so people understand where you've come from? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm probably unique insofar as a salesperson was all I wanted to be. I never wanted to be a fireman or any of those things. And that was because my father was a salesperson and uh, he was divorced. And so he used to drag me around on sales calls, selling power tools on building sites, which was in the UK, by the way. So (laughs) that sort of fueled my desire to get into sales. I eventually ended up in Australia, long story short, went home with people on holidays uh, because I was an overseas student at that stage, worked on farms, and then I decided I want to sell agricultural machinery. So I went to agricultural college to sort of learn a bit about agriculture. Uh, Machinery manufacturer came out, did a demonstration at the college. I thought that was great. So I went up and asked them, did they have a job? They took me on as an intern. That was a Caterpillar dealer. So then I started in selling Caterpillar machinery and um, kind of rose through the ranks, did very well at that, and was an early adopter of IT in terms of inventing a a CRM system, essentially, back in the days when they were batch computers. And I was Mm -hmm. kind of interested in that. And decided I want to get into IT. So I made a career broad jump and got into IT then. And then subsequently went on to start at the bottom again as a salesperson, worked my way up, became regional manager, worked for companies such as Oracle and so on, and became quite successful at that. And then got into training or coaching because I used to actually train my own salespeople. I used to coach my own salespeople. And colleagues used to come along and say, look, would you run a workshop for my people? And I said, well, it's not what I do. I just I train my own. And um, said, oh, you know, just an afternoon or something. So I sort of started to do that on an ad hoc basis. And then it grew to the extent that I decided to formalize and codify my sales methods into a formal program. And then subsequently went on to offer that, which is what I've been doing more recently in the last four or five years or so. Excellent. Okay. So as you look at most organizations, where do you see blind spots that are glaringly obvious to you, but because people are so close to the issues? They probably don't see them. Probably the biggest blind spot is to think that everyone thinks like you do. You know, we have our frame, as Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate psychologist said, you know, what you see is all there is. That's our reality. And the perception is that other people's reality is the same as ours. And of course, that's fatal when you're selling. And I guess that's the essential problem with salespeople, that they see everything through the lens of their product, where instead uh, you need to understand what the buyer or the other person's lens. So that's not just in sales, that's in everything, right? Um, It's in life. Yeah, I mean, it's a case of perspective to understand other people's perspective, 
one thing, you know, how they think. And the other thing, of course, is understand how people feel, which is empathizing. So, yeah, the blind spot is we don't tend to do that very well. And so what can one do in order to become more attuned to other people's perspectives and realize that there is something broader than your own filters? Yeah, well, that's interesting. That gets back to this natural thing, you know, that we can tend to do that naturally when we when we liaise or when we interact with friends. However, when we get ourselves into buyer mode or sales mode, sorry, I should say, then we start behaving in an entirely different way. We behave unnaturally, ironically. And so I guess if I'm on a mission, it's to, it's to help people get in touch with their real selves, behave naturally, engage as you would with a friend. Your friend enjoys your company, doesn't he or she? Well, then a buyer will enjoy your company as well if you interact with them in the same way. And that strikes a lot of people as odd. There are going to be a lot of old school managers out there screaming at their laptop or phone saying, well, you know, we're, we're not running a holiday camp and uh, we're not in business to make friends. We're in business to go to the bank. What do you say to them? Yeah, absolutely. They're right. I mean, and, but is it, you're, you're not trying to form a friendship with someone necessarily. What you're trying to do is interact with them and relate to them, okay, understand them. And I use the analogy of a friend because that's kind of what you do with a friend. And as a result of that, a friendship results. Now, in business, that's not the end game to create a friendship. The end game is to be respected and to empathize and understand the other person's perspective. And so the skills that you would use, or not the skills, the behaviors that you would use the friend are the same there. Now, it may happen that you form a friendship with the buyer. Well, that's not a tragedy, is it? You know, it's, but it wasn't your goal. Your aim was to was to be human, was to understand them. Can, can I just uh, challenge you on something? Because I, I think rather than respect, our job is to, you earn respect, but you earn your respect through serving. And there, there is a huge difference between service and servitude. Would you mind uh, clarifying and di- uh, making a distinction between them for the audience, please? Yeah, absolutely. It's like I, I make a distinction between being useful and being valuable. It's very easy for salespeople to end up being useful. A lot of the stuff they do is being useful, where being valuable is doing things that only you can do. Useful is doing other stuff. So um, I think the difference is it's about genuinely caring about the other person. So you know, one of the requirements of a salesperson, as far as I'm concerned, is the desire to genuinely be of value. If you're not, then you're playing a game. You're being disingenuous, okay? And the only way to be of value is to understand what the buyer's perception of that is. I mean, we have a perception of value, but my perception could be quite different to anyone else's. And I I think, you know, I'm somewhat bemused by this talk of value propositions, adding value, creating value, which organizations, you can't do that. That's arrogant, you know? How do you know what I value? You're clueless. The only way you know what I value is by asking me and exploring with me. And by the way, the only way I'm going to tell you that also is if I trust you and feel that you're not going to then take the opportunity to try and sell me something. So it's a case of allowing the buyer to become somewhat vulnerable and open up to you and say, well, yeah, what's value to me is to, to get my boss off my back because, you know, if I don't get this thing sorted, you know, my job's on the line here. Those are the sorts of insights that salespeople need to clearly understand what it is that's driving people's behavior. The only way you're going to find that out is by caring about them genuinely. And then they come to trust you. One of my mentors, Charlie Green, who I'm deeply grateful uh, to you for steering me down this course, wrote that uh, the trust equation and uh, trust equals credibility, which means that you can do what you claim you can, 
reliability means you damn well do it. And there's no equivocation. You don't make excuses. You do what you promised. And intimacy. And that getting close is a byproduct of time. It's a byproduct of being vulnerable and open first. It's uh, by demonstrating repeatedly that you are there to help them and that you have their back and you're delivering safety. And far too few salespeople, in my experience, make that paramount. And they put commission or they put hitting their quota or getting their boss off their back first. So what would you advise sellers who recognize that that is an unnatural thing for them to do because it jars? How do they handle that? Because they're obviously under enormous pressure. Yeah, I mean, the trust equation is great. And I think, okay, my perception of that is that most right-minded people do the things above the, the line. I mean, most people sort of want to tell the truth. Most people, uh, that's credibility. Most people sort of want to follow through on commitments, that's reliability. And the openness and transparency, we do that to one degree or another. But that can be organic. Where they really drop the ball, though, is with what goes below the line, self-interest. And that's the one thing that kills trust. So talking about your product, what's that? Self-interest. Talking about your company, self-interest. Talking about your your, 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 uh, benefits, features, whatever, self-interest. So as soon as a salesperson meets a buyer, what typically happens? Talk about the product, talk about the company. They immediately start losing trust. I, I, I use the analogy of a game of snakes and ladders. I think gaining trust is much like a, a game of snakes and ladders. The ladders are trust. You know, you've got the credibility, reliability, you've got those steps to gain trust. Self-interest is like a snake. Land on the snake and... <laughs> now, here's the thing. You build trust by the teaspoon or grow trust by the teaspoon and you lose it by the bucketful. Mm-hmm. And I think the challenge for salespeople and what I counsel salespeople, don't worry about growing trust so much. Just be a decent human being and that will happen. Just don't lose it. Because coming back from there is really, really hard. So I guess, yeah. And I think the trust equation is a beautiful metaphor to describe how trust works. It's best I've ever seen. Low self-orientation is very, very difficult when you're under pressure, uh, your boss is ragging on you, uh, you're behind or you've missed a quarter, and this is two in a row, and you're being told, drag forward deals. But as I look at the causes of that, management is complicit. But leadership is driving it. And then I look at what's driving that. And I then have to question, is there something broken in the way businesses are set up? Because money seems to have more voice than the customer, than the employee, than the community. What's gone wrong? How much time have we got? So <laughs> 45 yeah, I, I think I think the problem... <laughs> You mentioned leadership. I I think that's a problem. It's an absence of leaderships. We have managers. We don't have leaders. Leading is all about empowering people to be their best. And I was really fortunate, and maybe you were the same, Marcus. Early in my career, I had great mentors, and they had a huge impact on me in terms of what I learned, not just about my craft, but just how to behave and how to have a mature frame of mind. And I worked in a trade environment where they had apprentices. And the apprenticeship scheme was just fantastic in terms of helping people mature. Now, somehow or other, we kind of lost that. Uh, And now in this day and age, we don't have that, you know, 
big brother model of taking someone under your wing and growing them and developing them. And, you know, with any organizations I work with, I really encourage them to bring people into the bottom of their organization, grow. Everyone's looking for experienced people. Everyone wants an experienced salesperson. And it's like, well, who's creating them? Start growing your own. Start bringing people in at the bottom and create a culture of growing your own. And then create a culture of mentoring so that your good salespeople, skilled salespeople, mentor others. I mean, there's nothing more rewarding than, than, than mentoring someone else. And by the way, coaching other people is a great way to refine your own practice. You know, I remember um, when I got water on, on my knee once and saw the doctor and, uh, and I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, we got a saying in the medical profession. He said, you see one, you do one, and then you teach one. And he said, I've seen one. And I said, okay, well, you're not going to do mine then. But yeah. the point was, I think that you know, once you know how to do it, then teach, pass it on. And I think we need to, I think that's where the problem is. To, to to answer your question, Marcus, what's the problem in sales? And it's bigger than that. I think it's generally problems in organizations. And, and okay, we can get into politics for that matter. It's just a void in leadership. Well, that, the, I, I'm so pleased that you said this because uh, you've fallen into my wicked trap. Um, th- this is all about uh, understanding wicked problems. Um, wicked problems are complex. They are multidimensional. They are intertwined, intertwined and interdependent. Because there are multiple causes, it looks like you're dealing with a problem, but actually you're probably dealing with multiple problems running in parallel. And if you try and tamper with a bad system that has reached equilibrium, but you tinker with it, you send it out of kilter. And so you make a bad situation worse. And that's one of the reasons why I have a real beef in my bonnet because of the short-termism. And your, your point about lack of leadership is really well made because I don't think there is enough courage in leadership to say to the markets, we are going to have two quarters where we have to readjust. And I, I understand why they can't or they don't feel that they can. But if you take on a new CEO, that would be a really good time to say to the markets, we have to readjust. We've got to focus on putting the people who matter back in the frame. Because to my mind, the investors, are they, they've made a gamble. They've placed a bet. And when you place a bet, chances are it may not work out. But the best way to secure and guarantee that bet comes home is to ensure that the people who are meant to implement your vision or create the conditions for your exit are engaged, are satisfied, are loyal. At the moment, we have reached an all-time low. Only 9% of UK employees and 20% uh, globally are highly engaged. 9%. 18% are actively disengaged in the UK. That means twice as many are trying to, trying to throw a wrench in the machine than are doing their best, uh, their best work. That's a dysfunction of leadership. Absolutely. Yeah, I can relate very much to what you're saying, Marcus. I, I personally have been responsible for four turnarounds. And the first thing is whenever I went into these organizations was to set the expectation saying, look, nothing is going to happen here for at least three months. Nothing's going to come out the end for at least three months and nothing material for six months. But you'll see you'll see progress by about month four. 
the first time I just got to find my way around this place and understand the dynamics. And um, in each case, they were successful. I mean, some of them were so successful. One organization that I went into, they had three Christmas parties because they couldn't all stand to be in the same room with one another. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was just totally dysfunctional. And you're right, it's almost amusing in, in terms of there's nothing inherently wrong with any of these people under normal circumstances. You've probably heard of the fundamental attribution error, you know, where a cognitive bias that Daniel Kahneman talks about, that um, people's behaviour is a function of their situation. You know, we often attribute it to their character or their personality, where in fact, you know, science shows this, people's behaviour is more a function of the situations they find themselves in than anything intrinsic. So fix the situation and, uh, and you know, some of these companies I went into, you know, someone would turn around to me and say, well, see that guy, you need to fire so-and-so and then you need to fire someone else. And it was this, you know, sense that I didn't have to do that. And there, I had four dysfunctional sales teams. We went in, we turned them around. They became highly profitable, very effective. We didn't lose one person. Lovely. And so what's the legacy that that left behind then? Well, left behind... What I'd love to say, <laughs> it lasts about as long as the next person in the job, <laughs> frankly. You know, seriously, in each instance, I was very conscious of grooming a successor because I think that's another leader responsibility, right? Yeah. To, uh, and I always, you know, when I guess counselling people, mentoring people, suggesting to sort of take them into a role, I say, look, the best way for you to move ahead is to groom someone to take your place because it's going to make it really easy for us to then move you up. That naturally encourages them to sort of get into the mentoring spirit and coaching spirit and breed. And that's what we should do. And then you be, then you create a self-perpetuating organization. But that has to start fundamentally. Getting back to your original comments, Marcus, I think the problem is that we spend most of our time trying to fix the symptoms. We don't get down into the root cause and, and fix the real problem. And sometimes that might be a bit of a nutty thing, but we kind of have to do it. Well, again, you've fallen into my cunning plan. As I look at this, I, 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 maybe it's just me. I'm getting a bit wiser as I get older. But I look at the most underutilized resource, which is the middle management layer. There are so few good, great managers out there because there isn't a management runway. There isn't an apprenticeship. So it's one of the, my projects at the moment is de developing this management apprenticeship. And when I hire salespeople on day one, uh, I'm starting the process of training them and developing them into the next role that they want to move into. So that's part of the recruitment process. And I want to make sure that if they're going to, if they plan to move into management, they've lived and done the job for 18 months, two years. I don't want them starting out on day one thinking, oh my God, what do I do now? And then doing what was done to them by the worst excesses of their bad managers. I was interviewing a chap for the podcast recently, and uh, he said that on average over 30 years, American employees can only point to one good boss. Yeah. Now, that's a terrifyingly low statistic. It is. And it is. I, I've, I've run a similar poll. Now, it's very low numbers, but at the moment, we're looking at about an, a nine to one bad versus good, and most... Just the same, yeah, just the average. The problem there is that managers have such a powerful catalytic effect if they're good in empowering people. And on average, they get 20 opportunities a day to coach people on the job. Yeah. But most of those are wasted. Yeah, yeah. I think 
I think one of the the other possibilities of tragedy is the science says and the statistics are that salespeople don't good salespeople don't become good sales managers. Now I have difficulty saying that because <laughs> I was a good salesperson, and frankly, I think I was a good sales manager. Was I unique? I don't know. I've I have I have met some good salespeople, that, but you know the the study that was done covered some forty thousand people, so it was pretty extensive, and it was overwhelming. And the challenge is that it, it works on both sides in terms of why they why they fail to succeed, but. Lack of preparation, and and you know we got to be careful of what's what's the cause and what's the effect here. Uh, is it an absence of preparation or what? But one, of, in fact, I was having a conversation with a guy today, who was promoted into sales management, and then he went back into selling. That didn't work. But he was very effective as a sales manager, and uh, very effective as a salesperson. And he, you know, he he acknowledges that you know his the skills and the attributes that he has do not necessarily qualify him to be a good leader. And I can understand that. I, I think to, to, to get both is really difficult. To get someone that can make the transition is difficult. And it's an order of magnitude harder than maybe not even trying and just get different types of people, good leaders, to lead salespeople. Having said that, I don't have an answer on, how, on what it is we find instead, right? Where, where, where do we go? Because there's a general lack, absence of leadership anyway. Okay. Well, I'm going to pull on one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes, which I quote often, which is, your eyes won't see when your imagination is out of focus. Now, I think that the qualities that make a great salesperson and make a great manager have a massive overlap. Because if you are a manager or a salesperson who believes that your job is to serve and to help others get their needs met, I mean, my definition of selling is the facilitation of buying. That's the the most basic definition. And our job is to help customers make the best decision for themselves now and going forward into the future, whether it involves us or not. And they should feel safer with us by their side than without us by their side. Now, those are also the kind of qualities that make for a great manager. Absolutely. You put the other person's success and they become the hero in the story, not you, you are the guide. When you're the salesperson, you are Yoda uh, to uh, the customer's Luke Skywalker. And I think that service mentality, that belief that you should be rigorously authentic, it doesn't mean you have to be a monster and it doesn't mean uh, you have to exaggerate the issue. What it does mean is that you tell the truth. And you always focus on the customer's outcome or the other person's outcome. I think those qualities, if we recruited for those in sales, we would have a pipeline of good future managers. Yeah, I agree. And hence, getting back to the science, as I said before, I don't know kind of what the cause and what the effect is there. So it might be sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy to the extent of, well, it, it reflects the type of salespeople that have gone into sales management. And let's bear in mind that, okay, uh, 80% of salespeople aren't very good, all right? 80% of salespeople don't get it. I mean, that's a stat. They end up losing 30 40% of their business. Only about 7%, again, the stats are rubbery, are what you would call elite. The types of people we're talking about who, who are clearly biocentric do all of those things that we, we spoke about as far as the trust equation. They live that. 
And so when those people, what proportion of those people become managers and what do they turn out like? And I guess that's the challenge. We don't we don't know that. There's there's been no real substance or in terms of studies, not that I've been able to find anyway. And I've looked for them. The only one I found was the one I just mentioned, right? Um, but it was it was a fairly broad brush. Well, I, I think part of the problem there is that what passes for great in sales then gets promoted into management. You get the double whammy of losing a producer and uh, gaining a bad manager. And the the net result of that is it perpetrates. Um, you know, it, it keeps uh, reinforcing itself. That's right, yeah. And I, I think we need to really reflect if we were genuinely customer-centric. And I, I do hold out quite a lot of hope. And I'll tell you for why, because I think there is a transition. I don't know if you're familiar with something called spiral dynamics. I'm just starting to get into it. And essentially, it's a a leap from Maslow. Maslow is sustained because it's beautifully simple and elegant. Spiral dynamics requires a lot more uh, thinking. But essentially, what it describes is a way of perceiving filtering the world. And the dominant force in our working culture is one that's driven by success. However, over the last 40 or 50 years, that's really been given to excess. And the worst characteristics of the success ethos have taken over. So you've seen the destruction of the planet. You've seen erosion of uh, workers' rights in so many cases. And whilst you you see the European Union trying to enforce workers' rights, you see um, the UK pulling out of the European Union with the express intent of uh, pulling back some of those rights. We've already seen seen it happen. So there there is enormous pressure. And my challenge, or the the challenge, I think, is with the next generations coming through, they've looked at that and thought, you know, I don't like that. Now, a lot of people, our generation as well, are saying, you know, it's time to reset. And you saw it a couple of weeks ago when Goldman Sachs, CEO, issued an edict um, saying everyone had to go back to work and half the people didn't turn up. That's indicative that times are changing. Employers have to think differently because it will become a matter of whether or not you can attract any talent at all. Very few organizations can hide from their darker side. And it's going to become increasingly difficult to recruit. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think, particularly when we talk at talking sales, I think the 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 challenge starts with attracting people into sales. Right, that in the first instance we get the wrong people into the profession, and we kind of reap what we sow in terms of performance. And then we don't then coach and develop them and do everything else we need to do. So one of the things that's exercising my mind right now is where do I find? And I, I'm I'm getting rather interested in this idea of. I always have been interested in growing my own, you know. So, what we're one area I'm sort of exploring at the moment is veterans, for example. I've had experience training some veterans in sales. By veterans, you mean ex-military? Ex-military, yes. And um, when you look at the attributes that they have, and you look at the desirable attributes in a salesperson, the military or the army, or the British Army, in fact, wrote the first, you know, morale and man management manuals. You know, they wrote the books on terms of how to treat people and they made some gaps along the way. We won't go back too far in history, but but in general terms, right, that the principles are there in terms of leadership. 
And similarly, training, the emphasis on training, coaching was interesting because, you know, uh, in, my, in my program, one of the things that, that in my training programs one of the, and with my teams, one of the things I insisted on was a lot of practice, role playing, practicing calls and stuff like that. And when I was going through that with these guys, one of the soldiers turned around to me and said, you know, Pat, he said, we've got a saying in the army, train hard, fight easy. That's exactly the same in selling, really. You know, if you, you, you practice and role play, then... And I, I demonstrate this over and over again, role-playing with a salesperson at the start of a call, just did it the other day with a guy. And then you see he's pumped. He said, I'm, I'm just really ready to make this call. Starting from a starting from the point of he wasn't terribly sure how he's going to get it off the ground. Mm-hmm. And we role-played with some other people, you know, participating in the role-play. And by the time he'd finished, you know, after about 50, he said, why don't I do this all the time? I said, you tell me, why don't you do it all the time? You know, if you want to get good at golf, you want to get good at tennis, you want to get piano, you're going to practice, right? And and um, but tennis, but sorry, salespeople are all um, you know live performance. You know, I often turn around and say, you know, would you climb into an airplane where the pilot has as much training as the average salesperson, or sorry, practice as much as the average salesperson? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't, would you? Uh, we laugh at it, but you know it's 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 serious, Marcus. That's the problem, and we keep I, making I'm the same you. mistakes. We keep making I, the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, well, so I, I tell I, t- I tell the story. I was doing a demo once uh, of a CRM system to some people in Singapore. So, and I'm in Australia, so we were doing it remotely, sharing a screen, and they were using a conference phone in the middle of their conference table. So it was all very pleasant, went through the demo and then finished. So I switched off the screen share, but I hadn't hung up the phone. So the, the, I could still hear what they were saying. And they said, well, he wasn't a very good salesman, was he? Yeah. <laughs> so it's really sobering hearing that because, you know, you walk out and you think, well, I've got this. But you yeah. don't know. Buyers don't mark your card. And you just go back in there again and go, mate, no, I had made some newbie errors. I shouldn't have made those errors, but it really woke me up to say, actually, I did a crappy demo. I shouldn't have even done a demo. That was where I started. That was the problem. I demonstrated my product instead of, you know, potentially demonstrating their solution, which I should have been focused on. A newbie error. Nuts. But that's what I did. But it was like a cold shower. And I think that's what role-playing and practice does. You get those cold showers more frequently, which keeps on the edge. But getting back again to my original point about recruiting, Another potential source is athletes, ex, you know, professional ex-athletes often find it hard. They've devoted their life to, to you know, pursuit of excellence in their sport, find it hard to get into work. But you think about it, the, the attributes of an athlete very much suited to what we need in sales. So anyway, just to let you know. This well, is I, I, I think there's another uh, great potential source, which is uh, people who've been on the buyer side and have maybe come to the end of that career because of COVID and uh, redundancy, and they're looking for another career. They've got another 10, 15 years in them. Um, yeah. I think those people would make fantastic salespeople. You should find people with the right attributes because they've sat the other side of the desk. They, they've experienced what it's like. That's incredibly powerful. And I, I think we're, we're now in a position where we've got three, maybe four generations working in organizations. That's an incredible opportunity. We can look at it for all the conflict it can create and the misunderstandings, but the brilliance of having four generations' eyes on the same problem and the difference in perspectives that you can get 
My pal, Anthony Willoughby, spends a lot of time working with the Maasai and um, various other tribes around the world. And uh, he was asking them when he first went there in the uh, 1970s about uh, who their leaders were. What what do you mean, leaders? And so, well, we have leaders in every generation. And we have leaders for different things. We have leaders for looking after the cattle, for defending our territory against neighboring tribes, against uh, predatory animals, um, for dealing with weather, floods, and stuff like that. And it's interesting. We seem to have lost that. And a thesis that I'm working on is we need to tap into the natural systems that put us to the top of the food chain. If we look at what put humanity to the top of the chain, one of them was really genuine cooperation, real cooperation. Mm. Not this arm's length collaboration where you, know, you don't get our best stuff, but you let them in, you get, you get close to one another, you become intimate, you, uh, you want your partners to succeed. And I'm seeing more and more of that. You're seeing these spontaneous groups emerging on platforms like WhatsApp, Discord, on LinkedIn, uh, and undoubtedly on platforms that I don't even know exist yet. My favorite example was one of my pal's daughters, age 15, has been recruited into a team of 21, 14 to 17-year-olds that are using modern project management techniques and uh, technologies in order to develop a computer game And they split into different groups, designers, coders, and various others. And they're they're using RACI to hold one another accountable, uh, to communicate. It's amazing. And all of that without any adult involvement. Yeah. You know, one of the most telling experiences for me early in my management career, I joined a a group called Apex, which is a young men's under-40s club. It's a bit like a Rotary Alliance, but for under-40s. So... These guys are under 40s. They don't have a lot of money. So, in fact, what they do is they go around and do good works, you know, building kids' playgrounds and stuff like that. And so you've got people from all walks of life. And, and, and one of the things I sort of observed really early in the piece, we go out, we build a kid's playground, and whoever was the builder sort of took charge of this. And the doctor, who's no real use for it in that, he'd be wheeling a barrow, right? But then someone cut their finger and then the doctor came in and he sort of took over from there. And what happened was there was just this natural order took over. Everyone knew this, you know, that it would be your strength. Yes, you they to make the weaknesses irrelevant. Exactly. And getting back to your point about the Maasai, the, you know, if it was a, sort of a bit of a medical emergency, the doctor would take over, right? He, he became the leader at the, at the moment. But if you needed to sort of start putting this shed up, well, then the carpenter took over, right? He was the manager. And I actually then started to employ that when I went into business. And, and these businesses I turned around, a few of them, I basically declared all positions vacant. I mean, one of the things that amuses me is that we just panel people and panel beat people into these roles. And what used to happen was I'd, I'd get a sales team, I'd declare all positions vacant, and I'd say, okay, what I want you to do is tell me what accounts do you want? What territories do you want? What accounts do you want? And I'll reconcile any differences. The incredible thing was, they do all of that, you know what? And there might only be a 5% overlap. They intuitively knew, they thought, I should really be handling that account, you know, and, and he should be really handling. But we somehow just intervene, you know, that's the management rather than leadership style, where we impose our will instead of saying, hey, listen, guys, what do you think? What do you think is the best way to sort of do this? And kind of let water find its own level. And it works. And then just reconcile the conflicts, reconcile things that don't fit into place. So. Other qualities that I'm seeing that make for great salespeople and great managers and great leaders. 
you find what people have in common, you find what they want, and you accommodate them as best you can, because you find, uh, you'll get a lot further by building bridges than uh, by blowing them up. And the other aspect of that is you're really very good at creating discretionary effort, which great salespeople have to. One of my favorite clients ever, Caroline Pino, because she really deserves a, a, a shout out. Her first month was diagnosed with having cancer, uh, got treated throughout her first year uh, in this first uh, in, in this job. Uh, she came in at 320% of quota, only able to work two hours a day. And she did that because she was able to drive discretionary effort and she took care of everybody. She knew everybody. And in that two hours, she was three and a half times more productive, or about six times more productive than the average salesperson. Yeah, yeah, considering the time she worked. Yes, it's kind of telling, isn't it? Yeah. Well, hopefully people took a lesson away from that, right? Well, I sincerely hope that they did, because the, the really important part about this is sales is not about selling stuff. It's about helping other people get their needs met. In turn, your needs get met. It's a byproduct. Commission is a byproduct of doing your job well. So my, my question here is this. In terms of what we measure, how we reward people, if you had a blank canvas, what would you do differently to ensure we drove desirable behavior instead of the undesirable behaviors that we so often see. Oh, okay. Well, I think the compensation plans and sales are just kind of nuts, okay? It's like, you know, with an athlete, it's a bit bit like measuring performance on the gold medals that they win. As an athlete, you you train on your personal best. You 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 train on your times. You just keep improving your times. And you and you do that every day, you know, okay? So you're getting regular measures. And then when your performance is good enough, then you get a medal, okay? So the medal is, is just a measure. It's not, it's, it's, it's not so much the goal. It's just, it's just recognition of how good your best time was or how fast you were able to run. So I think in terms of selling, it's exactly the same. We should be rewarding. We should be measuring people on the extent to which they're growing relationships, uh, growing sales, uh, understanding people's perceptions of value, all the stuff they do to create a sale. If they if they do all of those things right, so in other words, you know, re- reward and recognize the inputs, then you're going to get the outcomes. So the money is simply a measure of how much other people value what you do. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So the value is in terms of their performance, the things they're capable of doing. So, you know, if you read Daniel Pink's Drive, and I mean, there's as he, as he says, you know, in his, his book about motivation, he said it's one of the most researched areas in social science. Motivation is all about intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic. Absolutely. And th- this is these, these, these people that you're talking about, the 80% of disaffected workers, a lot of them aren't dissatisfied with what they're getting paid. That's not the problem. They just don't like being where they're at. They don't like the environment that they're working in. The, the, it's not rewarding. It's not encouraging. They don't enjoy the culture. So, yeah, I, I think we're measuring the wrong things. I uh, couldn't agree be... more. I, I think we're measuring the wrong things, and I think the wrong people are getting compensated. Or yes. I don't think the right people are getting compensated. I think, you know, certainly in enterprise, selling is very much a team sport. Why is it marketing doesn't get rewarded as much as uh, sales does or uh, the CS team does? 
Um, you know, th- these everyone was involved, and I think we reward the for the wrong thing. We reward the uh, the winning of the deal instead of the customer achieving their desired outcome. We, in fact, we actively disincentivize salespeople um, to worry about the long term uh, transa- uh, long term relationship with the customer and to focus just on the short-term transaction. That, to me, is insane. I mean, I'm more interested in what I keep than what I make. Yeah, I mean, well, the other thing, if you look at the military, you put your best troops into the toughest areas, right, because you want to make an impact. Look at what happens in sales. We put our best salespeople into the best areas. The toughest areas... We put our worst salespeople in. Why? Because we've got a compensation plan based on commission. They're not, they're not going to sell anything, so we'll put them in this tough area. Well, they're never going to sell anything because they're not good enough and it's tough. Where we should be putting our best people into the toughest areas. So that, you know, and so we make a lot of dysfunctional judgments based on the compensation plan. The commission plan drives, you know, what patch a salesperson have. We've got to put him here because otherwise he won't earn enough somewhere else, which is just it's just kind of nuts. We need to separate the compensation and we need to match the person to the patch. And um, I mean, it's common sense, isn't it? Well, it's uh, uncommon sense. Let's give it that. Um, <laughs> again, tell me this. Why is it that thinking is not an integral part of leadership and management day to day? To me, the, my best work, comes because I think deeply, not because I act quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, Marcus, it's because of our chimp brain. <laughs> We're 98% of our time on autopilot. You know, the thing that we the thing that we forget is that over the 300,000 years of our evolution, the last 10,000 years is like, you know, like a minute on a 24-hour clock. So all the way before that, all the way before that, we were sort of getting through the savannah in a loincloth, trying to avoid saber-toothed tigers and, and hunt stuff and stay safe. That's what we evolved to do. And we still have that exact same brain. We still operate exactly the same way. So we're 98% of our time on autopilot trying to avoid saber-toothed tigers. Although this day and age, it's salespeople, for example, <laughs> modern-day equivalent. And we only spend 2% of our time, therefore, thinking, okay, now that science has been done. You know, I mean, it's that's accepted. Think about that. Like you and I right now, we're on autopilot. We're not thinking you know, because our thinking mode is a million times slower. I mean, it uses a lot of energy to, to think. We really got to slow down. So anything that we say or anything that you say or I say is already in our brain. I haven't thought of an original thought since we've been talking. It's had to come out. And that's what happens when you engage with a buyer. So they're 98% of the time on autopilot just as you are. And if you reflect on that for a while, and I've reflected on this quite a lot since I got really interested in it, then that tempers how how you act, how you how you how you conduct that conversation. You know, the very act that a salesperson, for example, is thinking of asking his next question when he's having a needs discovery. But the very act of thinking of that next question or looking, he stops listening. He can't do two things at once. So he doesn't hear what the buyer says. And I've tested this numerous times with with sellers. The only way you can do it properly is forget about your piece of paper, forget about your questions, just focus on the buyer and hang on their every word. Now, when you do that, your next question will naturally occur. You'll say, oh, yeah, so what happens then? Okay. And and then what? Okay. A conversation will now, and that's what we do with a friend. You don't rock up with a friend with a series of questions. So now tell me, how's Aunt May going? Oh, yeah, that's what salespeople do. And I, I think that's a, 
why engaging with friends is a good analogy or a good metaphor for how to engage with buyers. Just be in the moment. I would add one thing, and I, I learned this from my years with Sandler, which is right at the beginning, um, bring people into their thinking mind by establishing a clear agreement at the beginning as to what you want to happen by the end. And what that does is it brings both of you into the adult ego state. And you can start thinking rationally about your bridges, about the uh, mutual purpose. What is the outcome that you both want? If I understand what my customer wants, and I know that that's the kind of thing that we routinely can deliver, or with a bit of creativity, I can get there, then I have a justification to continue the conversation. If I don't believe I can, now would be a really good time to save both of us an awful lot of effort to establish what it is that you want, what it is that I want, are those compatible? What do we not want to have happen? Think about that stuff up front so that you can blow up those bombs and not waste a whole heap of time later. Because selling is expensive. It's expensive in terms of you know, the, the cost of pursuit, but it's emotionally it's expensive. It takes a lot of energy to do well. Don't waste any of your resource pursuing things you can't possibly win. That's an excellent point. A couple of colleagues of mine, Keith Dugdale and David Lambert, wrote a book called Smarter Selling. They created a technique called the I, We, You uh, for opening a meeting, which I now unashamedly teach, acknowledging them. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant technique. And right up front, you broadcast the outcome that you would like the buyer to get from this conversation and get agreement. So by the end of this conversation, Marcus, I'd like you to, to know whether or not I might be able to be of value to you. How does that sound? Or at the end of this conversation, hope you'll have some ideas about this, whatever it is, whatever you, whatever the premise was that you were going to go there for to confirm that. And then so the buyer can say, yeah, that's going to be good. All right. And so off you go. And then at the end of the meeting, of course, check that you you achieve that. Now, the interesting thing about this, and the sequence is I, we, you. This is the sequence in which you say it. I'm here because the we bit is how I suggest we do that is this, and then the you is what you will get out of it, right? So I'm here because of this, and I suggest how we might spend this time is this, 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 so you get that. And the way you create it is think of the you first. Now, interesting, when teaching this, people have a lot of a challenge trying to think about how to do it. They can think of the I and the we. The bit they have the challenge with is the you, the outcome for the buyer. And you sort of say, well, if you don't have an outcome, why should they even talk to you? And I, really, that's where the problem is. That's a problem. The problem with the poor sales calls is the seller hasn't thought of an outcome for the buyer. Because they're thinking um, selfishly. Absolutely. They selfishly. They want to and what does that do? Company Destroys trust. Absolutely. Self-interest. So... It's very hard to have a conversation if you're not used to doing it without talking about yourself uh, or your product or your service. But essentially do that, just that, and you're off to the races. You're halfway to being a great salesperson. And that, again, is another quality that great salespeople and great uh, managers have, which is a genuine curiosity, a deep empathic interest in other people and what yes. they want to accomplish. Yes. And interestingly enough, that is the sort of the antithesis of the stereotype. We tend to think of as you know the the gift of the gab type person as the archetypal self, which is absolutely not the wrong person and the wrong the wrong style. And, and by the way, that's what keeps a lot of people out of sales because they think, oh, well, that's 
that's what you need you need to do like the word oh he's a typical salesman or she's a typical salesperson that's we, what we mean but it's not but, it's wrong that's not what we, we want that's not natural we do our customers a disservice as well by perpetrating that stereotype because yeah. up to 40% of buyers are now deliberately trying to buy without any involvement of a salesperson the problem with that is those customers while they may be happy making that decision tend to churn very often, and it's because they haven't had the value of the salesperson being able to deal with their questions and help them become aware of stuff that they probably wouldn't from the website. My pal Simon Bowen from Models Method says selling should be the most noble thing you do in business. And I'm with him 100% because selling has a real nobility to it if it's done well, but far, far too often it's just turned into a transactional relationship well i'd say relationship it's not relationship because you sell and run and if they you know if you're selling three-year licenses or whatever or the, even SaaS, you're trying to sell for the renewal and you do a drive-by shooting when it comes to the renewal you know you've got no relationship and no engagement with the customer with the financial buyer with the users with the administrators how dare you turn up and expect them to cut you a check yeah yeah yeah. You know, I like to tell a story of uh, when I last bought a TV. Uh, you know, I, I went online and I did my research and uh, figured out the TV I wanted and the price I wanted to buy. And I went in on the weekend and I went into this electrical retail store and the guy said, hey, how can I help you? I said, I want to buy TV. He said, what sort of a TV are you looking at? And I told him, he said, OK, what price have you been quoted? And I said, well, you tell me your price. So he went away and came back and said, I can do that for such and such. I said, oh, no, that's, that's too much. He said, okay, what have I got to beat then? So I gave him a price and said, oh, no, I don't think I can do that. So I said, okay, well, thank you anyway. And I went out and then just two, three doors down was a specialist audiovisual store. I went into this store. I'd never been there before. And the guy came up, introduced himself. said, how can I help? I said, I want a TV. What do you want a TV for? I said, well, watch stuff. He said, yeah, but what sort of things do you watch? I said, uh, oh, sports, drama, current affairs. What type of sports do you like? I said, well, rugby, football, yeah, fast-moving sports. Yeah, okay. He said, so how big a room have you got? And I told him, and he said, how many people do you have? So he sort of looked, thinking about viewing angles, refresh rates, all that sort of stuff. And he's having this conversation with me. I thought, this is interesting. And he said, okay, well, based on what you said, um, you probably want to see be something like this. And he sort of explained it. Anyway, long story short, I bought the TV. The point was, he helped me buy my TV. He didn't sell me his TV. Right? And it was never about the money, was it? Never about the money. Now, here's the interesting thing, Marcus. Two years later, I needed a camera. And I was thinking, you know, I've been exploring it for quite a while. I needed a new camera. And I'm, I'm driving through town, and I had a half an hour to spare. And I go past another branch of this same store. And I, I said, oh, I might just pull in and just go and see what's happening. So I walked in, and I, a guy came, he's going to help us unload a camera. He said, what do you want to go for? <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and uh, I told him, he said, actually, I, I don't know anything about cameras. He said, I, I handle the stereo. He said, but anyway, tell me about what you want in the camera. 
and he, we got talking. He started talking about you know, how I wanted. I wanted it for professional use, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually the camera guy came over and he said, oh, look, John, I said, this is Patrick. He's interested in the camera. He's looking for this and this and this. And he wants to be able – it was all about – not about the camera, but what I wanted to do with it. Yeah. I wasn't going to buy a camera. I just was looking. I walked out of there with a yeah, camera. I feel a wallet to me coming on. And in both cases, this is this is in worst mode. In both cases, I bought the extended warranty. I never buy extended <laughs> warranty. That's where all their margin is. But I bought it. Uh, uh. And it didn't sell me a damn thing. So, you know, it's uh, not well, that hard, actually. Remember, it's the facilitation of buying. That's all yes. they did. They just made yes. it easy for you to make the choice. And then they got the hell out of the way. And yes. Selling is way overcomplicated by people who want to transact. Yes. Well, Stop. remember that saying, you know, they they just someone they just want someone they can trust to help them make decisions they don't trust themselves to make, right? That's oh. essentially the role. Right. Okay. So this speaks to, we're running out of time. So this is a good one to end on. One of the things that I see, I, I do a lot of work with founders and start, uh, startups and scale-ups, and I've done a lot of work in bucket loads of industries. I think 500 market segments I've worked in. And what I see consistently is a lack of trust because um, there is this obsession with accountability and you see it in the channel all the time. If you have good systems, expectations are clear, and you trust the people, you don't need people to be held accountable because they will hold themselves to account. And so my, I question whether or not we're looking at the right end of the problem, because I think very often it's in the recruitment. We've got to look upstream. Are we recruiting the right partners? Are we recruiting the right managers? Because that then filters through the culture of the organization. And I wonder, should we be really asking a bigger, deeper questions about, you know, is what passes for sales, what passes for good in sales, fit for purpose? And what should we be looking for in managers who are equipped to handle what's coming? If we look at the, you know, Q1 of 2022, we have the Cold War come back and gone hot. I've received two interest rate rises for the first time in 12 years, I think. I've received interest on my uh, saving. We have inflation running rampant. Yeah, 24.5% in construction, which is critical to the economic recovery. We've got supply chain broken all over the shop. We've got energy crisis. We've got the great resignation. We've got the great retirement. And we've got um, up to 72% of people in tech considering a change of job this year. That's the backdrop that managers are operating in today. What are we doing to equip them for what's to come? I think you're pointing to a bigger problem in society. I, 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 recall, I don't know what, who it was that said it, but we're spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. And I think there's just a sort of essential cultural disconnect, you know, to get back in touch with who we are as, as, as human beings. I don't have the answer. I mean, the interesting thing about trust, you know, I don't know. Have you heard of the trust default theory? No, I haven't. Yeah, okay. So it's a guy called, I think it was Levine out of the University of Alabama, that we have evolved to trust. I mean, when you think about it, we wouldn't have been able to create communities. That's how we went from being, uh, you know, hunters and wanderers and created communities because we had to trust and we had to protect one another, watch one another's back, and we built communities. So our natural behavior is to want to trust. And Malcolm Gladwell, sort of in his most recent book, Meeting Strangers or whatever it was, sort of refers to it. 
Except that one of the other attributes we also have is we're excellent pattern matchers. Gets back to this lizard brain, right, or that chimp brain, where we 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 remember we match patterns. And so we've got this pattern of a stereotypical salesperson. So as soon as this person fronts up saber tooth tiger, you know, it triggers. So you know, I think I think the salesperson is don't be don't match that stereotype. Don't. And this is what this IVU technique does. It completely disabuses them of that's what I'm here for, right? It broadcasts immediately. I'm here to get you an outcome. I'm not here to talk about products or services. And I think a similar thing happens with managers, you know, in a broader sense. We, we've got this chimp brain, you know, and we're trying to be more – our needs are more fundamental. The need to feel safe, like in a job, we're going to have shelter and food. You know, we, we've got these fundamental, remember the Maslow's hierarchy needs. We need, we're sort of up here somewhere and we have, we're not addressing all those lower things properly. And I think we just kind of need to get back to basics a bit. It's not that, it's not that sort of complicated really. You know, you, you find a lot of small businesses that run really well. They've got low turnover. The guy never went to a management class in his life. He's just a decent human being. Interesting. Excellent. Pat, we, we've come to time, sadly. Um, I'm, Devastated because I was just getting into this. <laughs> we could go on for hours. Um, so tell me this: you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Pat, age twenty-three. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? You know, he'd have ignored it, of course. Okay, <laughs> two things. I would have spent more time with my kids. I travelled a lot early in my career. I did spend time with my kids, but frankly, I could have spent more time thinking about it. Now, I I had my priorities somewhat skewed. That's point one. Point two, I would spend more time analyzing what I'm good at. I thought I was a great entrepreneur, but what in fact I was was entrepreneurial. I wasn't an entrepreneur, and they're different. And I would have, if I had worked that out earlier, I would not have started the business I started for myself, which was a, a, a SaaS company. I want to bore you with the story there. And when I reflect on what I was good at, I went in and replaced entrepreneurs who started companies and really took them up to the next step. That's what I was really good at. I wasn't the guy that did the startup bit. That's a different animal. Yeah. And I wished I had known that earlier. I would have saved myself a small fortune starting the company that I started. So that that would that would probably be it. But both very very good bits of advice. You mentioned uh, an author who said that we had evolved to trust. Was that Gladwell or was that someone else? No, uh, sorry. The, the the trust default theory, the guy's name is Levine. I can't think of it. I think it's Tim Levine from the University of Alabama. He's done the, the research or the science on that, okay? And I learned about him from reading Malcolm Gladwell's Making most strangers. recent book, was Talking with Strangers, I think it is, right, okay. uh, is where I learned about it. But This has been really instructive. Thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? Well, the the sales natural dot the sales natural all one word dot com. Just Patrick at the sales natural dot com or the website is the sales natural dot com. I'm on LinkedIn. Bacusis is a bit of an obstacle course, of course, the surname. <laughs> I know that feeling well. The, the sales natural will find me. Uh, excellent. And t- have you written any books? I sort of. Uh, t- yeah, well, I've I've got one as a work in progress actually, and. In fact, a guy, you know, John Smyber that was on, um, yeah. you, you interviewed not long ago, um, said to me I should just go and publish it as it is right now. I'm just not comfortable with it. He thought it was good enough to publish, and he kind of, he should know, I suppose. He just published a decent book. 
But yeah, so to answer your question, yes. Hopefully within the next 12 months, I'll get that out. I'll get well, that when, when that's out, then make sure you come back for the release. Yeah, I'll be hitting everyone up, have no fear. <laughs> so we'll be selling, won't it, or marketing. <laughs> Patrick Bacusis, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. It's been a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, tag someone. Make sure that people who uh, maybe a manager or two or a leader or two could maybe have a listen. That would be a good thing. And if you feel the urge, go to Apple Podcasts and leave an honest review. In the meantime, get hold of me, Marcus, at laughs-last.com. Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.